Thank you. Um, so I come from a family of three girls. I'm the middle of three daughters. Um, and growing up, we all loved The Lion King. So I thought I'd start by showing a really quick clip of actually my least favorite scene of The Lion King. And there is a purpose to this. Long live the king. Okay, I promise that wasn't just to traumatise you. Um, this scene right at the start, my little sister and I decided, being imaginative children, to make a game out of it. Um, so to set the scene, my living room has a sofa um, at both sides of the room, and we would stand in the middle. LJ, come, I want to show you this. Now, I have never won this game. My sister's two years younger than me. Um, oh, there she is. That's, that's kind of how it would feel when I fell onto the sofa. And she, she, I'm actually a bit scared of how she'd say it. She'd like screw up her face and shout, long live the king. I don't really want to think too much about it. But um, this was just kind of a fun game where the only thing that you could win is pride and maybe family honour. Not that I would know because I've never won. Um, <laughs> but I think we probably all have areas in our life where it's kind of a real version of long live the king and um, power struggles that we actually really care about winning we don't just throw our body weight at them but our achievements our skill sets our wealth whatever it is that will gain us that win long live the king so we're starting our series on Esther today, um, and it is a king who sets the scene. Um, I'm going to look first at chapter one and walk through it. Um, and it starts with King Xerxes. He's the ruler over 127 provinces, from India all the way to Kush, which is modern Ethiopia. Now, I don't know much about geography, I'll admit that. Um, and I did look on a map earlier at how far away these two are. So it's one point in Asia over to one point in Africa. And it is quite a lot of land um, that he was the king over. He throws a huge banquet for 180 days. Um, he invited all his nobles and officials. They were the only people invited for the 180-day banquet. And that's kind of like six months of partying. Um, and then it ends with a seven-day banquet, which he invited all of the people in the citadel of Susa, which is in Iran, which is kind of in the middle of this stretch of land that he owned. Um, and they get to join the party for the last seven days. This wasn't just any small party. Though. There were garden hangings of white and blue linen. There were couches of gold and silver. There was wine served in golden goblets. And each of the golden goblets was unique, we read, which is insane given that there was all these people and they all had their own unique golden goblet. This was a big party. The alcohol was unrestricted and the king was splashing out. He really made his power known among the people. <coughs> Enter Vashti. So Vashti is the queen. She's also throwing a banquet for the women in the province at this time. And one night when all these parties and banquets were going on, the king, while drunk, demanded that she come into his presence, into his banquet, so that her beauty could be shown off to all of the people. What happens next is perhaps radical, perhaps petty, or maybe just attention-seeking. But Vashti refuses to go. Now, maybe she was fearful of her husband. He was drunk. There were loads of guests. Um, maybe she was embarrassed of him or, or afraid. Or maybe she desired to gain power. He had all of this land, all of this kingdom, but she wanted to show him maybe that he couldn't have her, that she still had control of herself. 
Whatever the reason, Vashti refused to go. Rather unsurprisingly, the queen um, upset her husband by doing this. He wasn't best pleased. But his main reason was that he felt that it might set a precedent for all women in the land to disobey their husbands. He thought that this one act might make all women do the same to their husbands, lose a little bit of their power. Now imagine if you had one drunken argument with your spouse, and as a result, you banish them from the house and put a restraining order on them. This is kind of what he does. He tells her she's never again to enter his presence, never again to come into the palace. I think we're starting to get a feel for the kind of man that the king was. He's power hungry. He's not a caring, loving husband or a gracious king, but he's dominant, cruel, power-driven. He wants to be known by many. And he decided to search for a new queen to replace her. Now, it's onto this stage that Esther walks, but I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3 um, and then come back to talk about Esther afterwards. Because in chapter 3, we see another example of an individual who's given power and then misuses it to their advantage. At the start of chapter 3, the king honors a man named Haman. He gives him a seat of honor in the palace, and all the king's officials were to bow down to Haman and show him this honor. There's a Jew called Mordecai who's actually Esther's cousin and guardian, and he refuses to kneel down to Haman, to bow to him. And in that moment, a little bit of Haman's power is taken from him, or rather, not given to him. In the same way that the king panicked when Vashti refused to comply with his demand, Haman's actions show that he's threatened by Mordecai's refusal to bow. His response isn't just to kill Mordecai, which is already a bit radical, but he issues a law that all Jews in the land be killed. We can see an interesting pattern. A powerful man who has his power compromised by someone typically weaker than himself, who is fearful of what this means for their power and in response goes to extremes to gain power back. Let's read from Esther chapter 2, verse 7 to 17. If you have your Bibles, you can turn. The words will be behind me. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa, that's in Iran, and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She was pleased with him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place of the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete six months of beauty treatments prescribed for the woman, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. 
In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of all who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. In this chapter, we see that the king calls for beautiful young virgins to be brought to him, and we don't know how or, or how they found her or why, but Esther was one of these. She would have only been 14 years old, and there were about 400 women competing for position of queen. They spent six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. Now, I spent four years working part-time in Champneys, which is a health spa, and when I imagined the palace and this kind of regime. I, ma I imagine it a little bit like Champneys, um, a spa with 400 women walking around in white dressing gowns, maybe a towel on the head, cucumber on the eyes, um, little white slippers that maybe say Champneys on them, um, ready to get back in the perfume bath and do all this again and again before going to a four-pillar bed with um, draped curtains on it. This is how I imagine this palace, like almost like a dream world that you'd want to be in. But the reality is jarringly different. When the king called for them, the young woman had to go and spend a night with him, and then it was only if he was pleased that he'd call for them again. The king is not only seedy, but he's cruel, oppressive, predatory, and manipulative. He exerts power over women through where they can go and what they can do, and keeps them second-guessing as to whether he's pleased with them, constantly comparing them to 400 other girls. But there's two things that I want to focus on here, and the first is this. God uses those who are typically viewed as insignificant by society. Esther's story is in stark contrast to the king, Vashti, and Haman. She was typically a nobody in society. She was an orphan. She was raised by her cousin. Contrary to the king, Vashti, and Haman, who show off their social standing in some way or another, Esther kept her background a complete mystery. We read that she had not revealed her nationality. She didn't come from a wealthy family. She wasn't um, very old. She was 14. She was just a child. She didn't put herself up for this beauty contest. She was chosen based on her appearance. Even when the, she was there living in the palace, which could seem like a powerful thing in the land, she was actually in conditions that kept her being a nobody, just one of a sea of 400 other women. She was only there for her looks, whether she could please the king sexually and in her appearance, and was competing against all these others. She was not grappling at power. I imagine some of the other girls would have been flaunting their beauty and fearful that they might not become queen if they didn't. But Esther doesn't seem to do this. She continues to stay true to herself and, and to her roots and to walk in humility. And this story of God hand-picking Esther, someone insignificant in the society, and putting her into this position reminds me a little bit of when Jesus called his very first disciples years later. In Matthew 4, verse 18, we read this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, 
Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. In the Jewish society at the time, um, boys at the age of five went to the local synagogue school and started to learn Hebrew and memorize the Torah. By the age of 13, they should have memorized all the Hebrew scripture of the day, and then those that showed the greatest promise would continue in their education and keep studying further to become a rabbi. Um, they would then have to ask a rabbi if they could become their disciple, and the rabbi would choose an elect few who could, and then they would come and learn to be just like him. Jesus deliberately broke this by calling the young men to follow him and instead of waiting to be asked. And he also chose fishermen, who were the failed schoolboys. They hadn't got through to the further education of becoming a rabbi, and they worked long and hard hours. And not only this, but the fishing would have been the family business, so it's even more amazing that Jesus comes and rewrites the destiny of their identity. He picks them out of a way of life that they, that they should have known, and then calls them into an adventure that's far beyond anything they could have imagined. Similarly to Esther, they were the outcasts in their society, but they were directly approached by Jesus and chosen for furthering the kingdom of God. Now, Esther was directly approached by the king's guards and chosen by her beauty, um, noticed for this, and the fishermen were directly approached by Jesus, who saw their hearts and saw that they worked hard and were dedicated and would be good fishers of men in the future to carry out God's will on earth. But in both of these scenarios, God takes what they have, no matter how small, Esther's beauty, the fisherman's skill set, and then he uses it and multiplies it for his glory. What is stopping you from believing that God can use you? I know that I've often felt restricted by my age or my lack of knowledge or my life experience. But God's teaching me that this isn't something that restricts him from using me. And the second thing that I want to focus on is that we can approach the throne of God freely. In verse 13 of chapter 2, it says that Esther could take anything into the king that might help her to gain his favor. But God asks that we only bring ourselves. We are free to boldly approach the throne of God. In verse 17, we read that Esther won the king's favor, but we already have God's favor. We don't need to win it. And then Esther is made queen, but we are already heirs with Christ. Unlike King Xerxes, who created an atmosphere of power and a great divide and made it near impossible to enter his kingdom and his throne, God wants to partner with us. Unlike the ones that we've read about who wanted to keep power for themselves and lord it over people, God is so desperate to give you gifts. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And in Acts 8, we read that God wants to give us power through the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We receive power and we represent God, who's the king of the universe. That is amazing. So God uses what we bring him. Esther had beauty and he used it. The fishermen had their skill set and he used it. At the start of the summer, um, I had had a friend coming to visit and I went to drop them off at the station. And I was walking home and I decided to offer my walk to God. 
Um, I felt God was telling me not to listen to music, which I usually would, but instead to listen to his directions and to pray. And I felt as I came to a turn in the road that could have taken me a different direction or straight ahead but get to the same point, I felt God telling me to turn left and just nudging me to go down the side street. So I did. And as I approached the end of it, um, I spotted a girl from my square, which is like the new GT groups for students, who I was hoping to see for coffee later in the week, um, but hadn't arranged it yet. And so I went over to her, and I was going to just ask when she was free and when we could meet up. And as I approached her, she said to me, I'm so glad that I've seen you. I'm having the worst day at work, and I just need someone to talk to. And we ended up going for lunch, and she explained to me all about the kind of week that she'd been having and a diagnosis, and it was really awful. But in this situation, all I'd offered God was my time and my walk, and then he used that and brought this out of it. Sometimes it can feel like we need things or skills for God to use, but he will work with whatever you can offer him. So it might be your time or your walk. It might be your abilities. It might be your praying or your cooking. It might be your ability to easily talk to new people. But whatever it is, just bring it to God and he will make a masterpiece out of it. Esther was willing to be used by God and she didn't let her background stop her. So we leave the story here. Esther is queen. Haman has just ordered that all the Jews be killed because Mordecai would not bow to him. And Esther is a Jew. Now, I've already spoiled the Lion King for you, so I don't want to spoil this story. Um, but in the meantime, there is a lot to ponder over and to reflect on from this first introduction to Esther. And we're going to take some time to do that now. <laughs>